What, what a great stop. My heart is full from, from that. That was, that was nice. <laughs> My name's Phil. I'm the children's pastor here at Overlake. So I can usually be found somewhere in Kidtown, all the way down the long hallway on a Sunday morning, primarily with our upper elementary age kids who I invited to join us for worship this morning because I think it's good to find a few moments in the year where they can experience how you worship. And, and really it is, it's, an, it's a privilege to spend some time with you and spend some, share some thoughts with you in, in big church this morning. It's a little disconcerting to begin a message without some kind of group game. So let's do this. We're going to do boys against girls. Everybody stand up. No, I'm, don't do that. I'm just kidding. Just relief over everyone's face. There might have been prizes. You don't know. Um, needless to say, we have a lot of fun in Kidtown. And if you don't yet serve with us, you really are missing out. And we'd love to add you to our team. Um, I grew up in England, just north of London. I studied medical microbiology at the University of Newcastle um, in England. We call college university. We call high school college. It's all very confusing. It's basically to make us sound smarter and feel better about ourselves. But anyway, it's about that time. I'm at university. I'm at college. And God developed this passion for ministry, particularly ministry to kids. And so with many things, um, timing is everything. And I felt that God said, just wait, just wait. So I trained as an RN and I worked in the emergency room for a few years and also spent some time working in, in South Africa before God laid on my heart that it was time to explore full-time ministry again. I came to the U.S. seven years ago to begin that journey at a church in California. It was there that I met my now wife, Shay, and we've been a ministry, a part of the ministry here at Overlake for, for almost two years. And we've come to love this area and this church very deeply. And in many ways, it reminds me of, of England. Um, this past weekend particularly brings up fond memories of summer vacations um, with dreary downpours. Um, my wife, however, who grew up in Southern California, um, has a picture of summers with palm trees and beaches and blue skies and, and in and out. Um, so so uh, to help with her longing to see the sky again, uh, the practical fixer that I am, I painted the kitchen blue. Felt like that was enough. Um, the story of what brought us to Overlake actually fits really well with this series of curiously strong faith. Now, when I think of people in my mind that um, have strong faith, I probably wouldn't add my name to that list. But the interesting thing about faith is that in certain seasons of life, when we're faced with certain trials, we often surprise ourselves. So we're in California, and I was um, serving as the elementary pastor at Saddleback, and, and we were married in the February, which I, I can't say that word, February, February. We were married in the second month of the year, and then... <laughs> We led a short-term mission trip um, to Rwanda in the June, the following June. It was a family mission trip. Um, so it was parents and their sixth-grade kids made up our team, led by um, Phil and Shay and our many, many weeks of marital experience. Um, so you can imagine the challenges we faced every day through that trip. But there were some incredible spirit-filled moments throughout those weeks in Africa. And, and as it often is the case, uh, the most powerful ones were the most unexpected. 
So the one I want to share with you, we were in a bus for the whole morning, um, driving up this winding, dusty road to an orphanage at the top of a mountain. I don't know why it was the top of a mountain, but it was. And the dust is billowing around, so you picture that. You can smell the engine fumes. The engine has that whine of a struggling old engine trying to get up this dirt road. You can smell the diesel. You can feel the dust in your hair and your eyes. You can smell that distinct smell of a team that have been on mission for a week, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and Shane and I were at the front of the bus. My feet are resting on cases of water, my, my you know, knees are by my ears, and my hair and eyes are covered in, in dust, and I turn around to see what the rest of the group are doing and how they're, they're faring in this, this journey. And one of the dads, his name was Mark, um, had a plan to solve this dust problem. Um, and Mark was one of those team members that often has a plan. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I leave him to it. I turn back to my conversation with our translator, our Kenya Rwandan translator, which does take quite a lot of focus and energy. So um, we're inching our way to the top of this mountain, and eventually we turn into the orphanage compound, like an oasis in this dirt area. Um, I, we, we, the kids are running towards us. The, all the orphanage workers are kind of coming over to meet us, and I manage to kind of climb out of this little cocoon I've built myself. And as I climb out of the bus... I look to my right, down the bus, and now bear in mind, I'm trying to make a good impression. I have already, my clean white shirt is covered in dust and sweat, and I see our team who have all taken some version of Mark's solution to the dust problem, and his solution was to make a dust mask out of whatever we could find. So they'd use socks, wet wipes, stale bread was used, and even sanitary towels. Yeah. So me, the pastor, trying to look professional, trying to look like we've come, we know what we're doing, we're organized. We get off this bus sweaty, hot, dirty, and, and looking like crazy people, if I'm honest. We looked, we looked a little crazy. I'm super embarrassed, but we meet the people, we tour the facility, we play with some amazing kids, and then we get together to, to share a meal, and the orphanage leader start to tell us um, how he came to be running this orphanage on a mountain in Rwanda. He tells us of the struggles he's faced. How, in fact, initially, at the beginning of the journey, um, the day before he was, asked, he was supposed to leave, he was asked to change his plans and go to a, this orphanage. He was supposed to go to a different one in a different country. But he readily said yes to that call. He tells us of the various projects he's working on to improve the kids' quality of life, the skills that they're learning that will set them up for the future. He tells us that actually he's trying to work himself out of a job. He's trying to get to a point where the orphanage is empty and all the kids are in homes and families and the villages around. And the orphanage itself can just be a way of employment and, and creating some revenue for those kids. He tells us of the loneliness of living in a one-room house and the combined blessing and strain of short-term workers, much like ourselves, who come to visit. And Pastor Justin, one of the Rwandan pastors that was traveling with us, um, turned to me and he said, Pastor Philip, what do you think? How does this challenge your faith? And I replied, honestly, with real, real tears in my eyes, I was so moved by this guy's passion and courage. And I said, you know, it changes, it changes everything about my faith. It challenges where I serve and what I do. And I pray that God will send me to make a difference like this guy. And Pastor Justin said, 
That is a very bold prayer. To pray that God will open a door and lead you to a new opportunity is a very bold prayer because you don't know where it will lead. But I will pray it for you. I will pray this very bold prayer for you and for, for Mishé. And he goes on to pray in a very loud and uplifting voice. Um, he says, Father, I pray that you stir Pastor Philip's heart. I pray that you show him where he can make the biggest impact for your kingdom. I pray a very bold prayer that you open doors to new places to serve and you give him the strength to walk through those doors. And I pray a very bold prayer for Shay that you bless her with multiple children in her belly at once. Mm-hmm. There's a lesson there somewhere. We landed in LAX about a week later. My phone reconnects to the world, and I received an email from a pastor at Overlake with an opportunity they'd like to discuss. And as Pastor Jess, Justin had said, we prayed a very bold prayer, or he did, and it took some curiously strong faith and some supportive friends to follow that call here to Overlake. And we are expecting our first baby in just a few weeks. We're not having multiple babies, because I asked. Every time we go. Um, we do know that he's a boy. His name is a closely guarded secret, but to give you an idea of our creative name, uh, minds for naming things, um, we have five chickens. Um, chicken, 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 uh, rosy cheeks, and Karen. So he doesn't stand a chance. We're in the middle of a curiously strong faith series, and over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at some characters of the Bible that have proved to have strong faith through particularly difficult circumstances and how we can learn from their example. This morning, we're going to look at Josiah. Josiah was someone who, against all odds, leaned into the Lord for strength and guidance, and by doing so, was able to achieve great things for his people and for the kingdom of God. In 2 Kings 23-25, we read this. Never before had there been a king like Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. Josiah lived in a way that exemplifies Jesus' command thousands of years later in the Gospels that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength. The accounts of Josiah's life uh, found in the Old Testament, in the first part of the Bible, in 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. He lived for 39 years, um, which gives me about six to get a whole lot done, if I want to match him. Um, and the account of Josiah's life spans about two chapters. So in the interest of time, let me just catch you up with a brief overview of the life and times of Josiah. So from 2 Chronicles 34, it begins, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Okay, pause there for a second. Is there anyone in here who is eight years old? I have a couple. Okay, great. Can you, who is eight years old or seven years old, can you imagine being king? Would you like to be king? Yeah, I thought you might. <laughs> Grown-ups, can you imagine them being king, parents? I got you. You and I, I'll be in your kingdom. I got you. Don't worry. Don't worry. He's following in the footsteps of his father and his grandfather. They're pretty evil rulers, um, and they led the people of Judah away from God. 
Back to our passage. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor David. Pause again. So at 16 years old, he recognizes that following in his father's and grandfather's footsteps is not the way to go, and instead seeks God. Back to the screen. Then in the twelfth year, he began to purify Judah and Jerusalem, destroying all the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and cast images. So now he's at 20 years old, and he sets about repairing and restoring the damaging work that has been done by the kings before him. For a long time, they had turned a nation away from God and looked at these idols and sacrifices and images, and Josiah wanted to bring the people back to God. And he actually spent years at this task. Verse 4, he ordered that the altars of Baal, which are other gods, be demolished, and the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, which honored the goddess of fertility, the carved idols and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars, and so he purified Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same thing in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, and even as far as Naphtali, and in the regions all around them. He destroyed the pagan altars and the Asherah poles. He crushed the idols into dust, and he cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And then finally, he returned to Jerusalem. So at this point, he'd been king for about 18 years. And at 26 years old, he begins to coordinate the repairs and rebuilding of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, the temple, which has been left in a pretty poor state, and it's serving as a very strong symbol of a nation that has turned away from God. And as they begin to work in this rebuild, they discover the book of the covenant that was given by God through Moses, the book of Deuteronomy. And over the years, these teachings have, for some reason, been lost or perhaps hidden or um, maybe they were trying to avoid capture. We don't quite know, but they would definitely have been ignored. So Josiah has this scripture read to him as soon as it's found, and he rededicates his life and work to God. He reads the scripture to the people, which has only happened twice in the preceding 750 years, and urges them to turn back to God also. In return, God promises to save Josiah from the impending judgment of Judah, and as an example to the people, Josiah reinstates the Passover feast to remember God's promises. Towards the end of his reign, um, unfortunately, he makes a bit of a mistake, either through arrogance or a a lack of forethought or something. He, He jumps in the middle of a war between two armies, and without God's prompting, just gets in the way. Um, In that battle, he's killed, buried, and the poets and songwriters just go crazy. That's Josiah's life. Jumping back to the beginning, Josiah became king at only eight years old. Eight. When I was eight, the biggest responsibility I had taken on was to look after the class hamster for the summer. His name was Hannibal. Um, and I remember distinctly um, saying that De- Han- Hannibal, hamsters, are desert creatures, so there is no reason to refill his fresh water supply ever, in my mind. He was three years old when we got him, so the kind of common thought was he's already on borrowed time. Um, so there was, um, there was some relief when we returned Hannibal the following September, still lively, a little dehydrated, um, but, but good. Josiah took on the challenge of being king, and he did so with curiously strong faith. 
I don't know what comes to mind when you think of what great faith might look like, but in Josiah's case, his great faith led to great action. And this is the case for all of us. Great faith leads to great action. Great faith leads to great action. From Josiah's life and leadership, the Bible gives us some great points about faith and about leading into God's strength and following God into action. And there there are three things from Josiah that I want us to look at. And the first is that Josiah overcame his past. Josiah overcame his past. His, His grandfather was an evil king. His dad was no better. In fact, his cruelty got him killed. So Josiah had no good example to follow. Those key people in his life had let him down in that sense. But Josiah didn't allow his past to overshadow what the future could hold and the impact he could make in his lifetime. I'm going to go on a limb and suggest that everyone has a story that in some way follows that pattern. You'll have heard the phrases, you look just like your dad or you look just like your mom. Um, And every parent places some kind of expectations on their kids. And whether that resonates with you specifically or not, everyone at some point in the past has experienced something that was hard to overcome. Whether that incident was minor or catastrophic, there is a decision to be made as to whether we will be shaped by that experience for the better or for the worse. It will shape us. It's our choice to decide whether it will be for good or not. In fact, I'm certain there are people in this room that are hurting now and working through stuff even even this morning. And if you are, let me promise you that you are not alone. If a physical wound is left to fester, it will get worse. When I worked in the ER in England, I had an elderly patient brought in by ambulance. Uh, It was a night shift. She'd fallen and been unable to, get, unable to get up. Maybe not an uncommon story, but we found out later on that actually earlier um, she'd cut herself, cut her shin on something. And much like we would, she's independent, lives alone, didn't worry about it, just covered it up and, and left it, left it alone. But the cut got infected, and then it got worse, and then it spread. And as she's just covering up this wound to stop it from bleeding, the infection is spreading through her body. By the time she arrived at the accident and emergency unit, she not only had a really serious infection, but the original bandages she'd applied had stuck to the wound in such a way that they'd become part of her leg. So using forceps and a scalpel, in fact, I have a video. No. No. We often take the same approach to injuries of, of the heart. We just ignore it. We, we hope it'll pass. We cover it up. And in fact, we need to do the opposite. We need, to, we need to open it up. We need to talk to someone. We need to begin a process of healing. It's not easy, and it's, it's, it's never painless. But the longer that wound festers, the harder it is to heal and overcome. Here at Overlake, we have people who would love to pray with you, and we have support groups where you can find that help and healing that you need. Please don't go through something alone. We do want to walk with you through it. Everyone has a story. And Josiah is a great example of someone who broke that cycle and forged ahead with a new story, shaped by the past, 
but not controlled by it. He didn't give in to expectations of others or his environment, but he sought out what was right. And the second attribute that Josiah had was that he remained teachable. Josiah was teachable. He recognized the scope of the task ahead. Being aware of his inexperience, he even had the humility to look, for God, look to God for guidance and success. In 2 Chronicles 34.3, it said, During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the, Lord, the God of his ancestor David. He began to seek God. He began. It was the beginning of a journey of faith and of growth and of learning. Generally, we're more teachable when we're faced with something new. Um, when we're working with kids or maybe as we're parenting, and we talk about teachable moments, which are unplanned new situations or circumstances that occur that provide an opportunity to expand a child's knowledge and understanding about something or maybe someone. And they're super important because they nurture this attitude of lifelong learning, an idea that lessons can be found everywhere, that we're never done with discovering new ideas or new opinions. When we've seen a situation or a problem before, we tend to rely on our past experience more and more. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course, but it's still wise to remain teachable even when we're confident of an appropriate response. And in Josiah's case, he started to reign just as a kid. It was probably more natural to lean on the wisdom of others, but it wasn't until he'd been a kid for almost king for almost 18 years that the book of the covenant, the teachings of Moses, was even found. And after 18 years of leading and ruling, he still listened to the teachings from this newly discovered scripture and sought God's word for direction. 2 Chronicles 34, 31, the king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. God will continue to do great things through those that remain teachable. John Wooden, the famous basketball coach who also incidentally displayed great faith, said this, it's what you learn after you know it all that counts, which I love. It's what you learn after you know it all that counts. And I think the same is true in faith, and perhaps even more so. We need to stay open to God's direction or, or redirection whenever it comes, especially when we think we have it down. And that might look different for each of us, but the one unifying question that we can challenge ourselves with is, am I teachable? Am I teachable? Are you? Do you seek out opportunities to learn from others? Do you evaluate past actions and projects and look for ways to improve on it? Do you have a mentor in your life or at least someone able to speak truth to you? Do you surround yourself with people that encourage you to grow? Do you listen to Sunday sermons and nod your head? Or do you allow God to change your heart and mind and turn that agreeable head nod into tangible change? Very few people, in my experience, enjoy change for change's sake. We might like the idea of repainting the house a new color or that new 
recipe that involves blueberries or that crazy project on Pinterest. We might like those ideas, but real change is hard. Real lasting change is even harder. It isn't a passive act that happens to us. It's something we need to work at and something we need to invest in. By overcoming his past and remaining open to God's direction and teaching, Josiah was able to bring restoration to a kingdom. He brought restoration to his kingdom. He didn't just talk about change. He didn't just grumble about what was wrong and complain about what was broken. He was a king of action. He recognized this very important idea that to remove the wrong is only half the battle. It is even more important to restore the truth. Removing the wrong is only half the battle. It is even more important to restore the truth. If you take an old piece of furniture, maybe remove the flaking paint and old glue and treat the woodworm or whatever, take off the fading cushions, whatever it is, you have removed the wrong. But to restore it, you need to spend time bringing the piece back to life, sanding, repairing, painting, whatever it is. And if you don't take that step, all you have is a broken chair. The difference is you know it's brokenness. You need to take that brokenness and restore it to new life. Josiah knew that faith must lead to action, and the way forward was through God. He led the people to restore and renew the covenant that God had made with the people generations before. God had always been faithful. They had not. And Josiah saw that he needed to do more than just point out that wrong. He needed to lead his people to action. And he led them to a restoration of the covenant, the promise from God that was there all along. They pledged themselves anew and pledged to walk in God's ways in a way that had not been seen at least since the time of the judges, which was years and years before. So reading on from where we left off in 2 Chronicles, he required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make a similar pledge. The people of Jerusalem did so, renewing their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. So Josiah removed all the detestable idols from the entire land of Israel and required everyone to worship the Lord, their God. And throughout the rest of his lifetime, they did not turn away from the Lord, the God of their ancestors. Josiah renewed his promise to God, his commitment to live and lead in a way that honored him. And then he encouraged and inspired others to do the same. He sought change in himself and change for a nation, a nation that had turned away from God for years and years. He knew that great faith requires great action, and a renewal of faith should lead to a renewal of a passion to serve and further God's kingdom. So where does your faith need renewing? What wrong needs to be restored to truth? Who around you needs your encouragement or example to follow God or encouragement to turn back to Him? Josiah, against all odds, his age, his background, his environment, was able to achieve incredible things for God because he remained open to teaching and change. He didn't allow a broken past to dictate his future, but he used that experience to govern well. 
What experiences do you need to move on from? What past hurt do you need healing for or freedom from? How is God prompting you into action this morning? How can your faith be turned into action? In the New Testament, in James 2, it says, So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Faith by itself is not enough. I don't, I don't claim to have a faith like Josiah's, but just over two years ago on a mountaintop in Rwanda, my wife and I prayed a very bold prayer that God would take our faith as weak as it is and lead us to where we can serve Him. And that prayer led us here to Overlake. So let me end with this challenge. What is your very bold prayer? What do you need to overcome from your past? Is there something you need to change or persevere through or challenge or protect? What is the next step of faith that will empower you to become who God has created you to be? Perhaps your prayer is simply to be more teachable, for God to show you how to live in a way that really holds nothing back. How can your faith this morning be turned to action or change? For you, it might be big change or it might be something smaller that's been in the back of your mind for a long time. You might need to speak truth to someone as Josiah did or restore someone's confidence and strength. I don't know. But if you call Overlake your home and you haven't yet found a ministry where you can serve and use what God has gifted you with, then can I encourage you? Actually, can I plead with you to start there? If you haven't yet found a place where you can restore hope and truth in the lives of others through the ministries of Overlake, you really are missing out. And so are we. And so is the kingdom of God. To remove the wrong is only half the battle. It is even more important to restore the truth. Don't just point out what is broken. Work to restore the truth. Together, in God's strength and guidance, we can do that. A small amount from a lot of people will make a huge difference. And we can restore truth in this area, in the lives of those around us, and way beyond. Everyone is shaped differently, has been equipped with different strengths and passions and experience, and thank the Lord they are. God will do incredible things through this church if we turn our faith to action this morning. However you feel God is leading you this morning, whether it's to reach out for help for yourself or or jump into serving others, can I encourage you to take that step? Don't put it off. Pray a very bold prayer this morning and see where God leads. See what doors open and ask for his strength to step through. Share that bold prayer on your connection card. We'd love to pray alongside you this week. Don't put it off. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the example of Josiah, and we we ask and pray a very bold prayer of faith. We ask that you will use us that you will show us what needs to be restored and give us the strength and the courage and the determination to see it through. 
Instill in us your passion for your people in this place, in this area. And help us to live in a way that honors you and brings glory to you through our lives and through the lives of others. Amen.